0: Equip classes that are starting on our Sunday morning um, times the February classes um, One of them is if, if you're a parent of a middle schooler Like I've got one right now all the rest are elementary and like I'm realizing it's a whole different game baby. this is like kind of different different life So some of you know much more about that than I do. I'm just kind of getting into it So one thing that we've done is we've we've created a community on Sunday mornings, uh, that's going to be led by some of our pastors and some volunteers that really is primarily about just kind of get together with other people in similar stage of life. If you have a, a child who's a middle schooler and there's there's sort of a teaching element, but there's some discussion and just sort of, you know, connecting piece. So I would really encourage you to be a part of that. And then secondly, um, a good friend of mine, Dan Van is going to be doing a two week seminar on looking at understanding homosexuality from a Grace and truth, biblical perspective, lots of full grace, full truth, and, and just walking through and wrestling with how, how do we as a culture think through and, and process and embrace and love and be community in, uh, with, with this cultural challenge that we have. And then secondly, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago at CSU uh, this Friday in two nights, we're going to be having this Veritas forum that's on the back there. Great opportunity to to have a civil exchange of, of ideas between an atheist and a Christian on uh, kind of some central questions of can can science and faith like live in the same universe? Can those two things cohere? Can you be a, a rational Christian? And be scientifically minded at the same time. And what is that what does that look like? So I think a very interesting dialogue there. And then lastly, inside of your bulletin on the bottom, uh, put just a couple notes there about our schedule. So next week we're going to be meeting as as normal. The week after that, uh, Wednesday night community will will be. Uh, Pausing for that night So we won't be meeting in here normally And those of you with kids especially Will be invited over to our main auditorium uh, We have an illusionist coming in So if I, if I couldn't do this job I would love to be an illusionist That'd be kind of fun You know, make like the Statue of Liberty disappear Kind of, kind of stuff And so it's just It's going to be a fun, fun night um, Again, families are encouraged to be in there Bring your kids Or anyone is certainly welcome To go to that But that's just sort of the schedule Coming up there in that way, we're in a series looking at uh, interactions, encounters that Jesus had with various people throughout the Gospels. And the, the first couple of weeks, we've been looking at this idea of how Jesus gives some kind of surprising, astonishing, sometimes shocking, certainly shocking answers to life's big questions. And like Ecclesiastes, says, there's nothing new under the sun. The questions in the ancient world of, of meaning and purpose and how do we fix the world? and Why is it broken? Exist today. Exact same big questions. So the, these are perennial questions. They're eternally relevant questions for us as well. So we looked at some questions like, um, what's wrong with the world? How can it be set right? And last week we looked at, at Jesus walking into what is maybe one of the happiest celebrations of all, but it's kind of starting off bad, a, a wedding feast. Tonight we're going to look at the other end of, uh, not a celebration, but, but a mourning a, a funeral service that, that Jesus also walks into here and answers, again, a huge, huge question. Now, here's the context. If, if you have your Bibles, turn to, to John chapter 11, the Gospel of John and the New Testament, chapter 11. Now, here's the context of what's going on. Jesus, Jesus is in a nearby town. Um, there's a there's a town called Bethany. Uh, Jesus is not is not there now Bethany Bethani literally means the house of the poor and there's some evidence that that's exactly what this little town was a little town which tended to embrace and uh, be almost a hospice for people who are poor and needy and sick and it was just about a little less than 2 miles outside of the holy great city of Jerusalem just on the southeast side of the Mount of Olives and Jesus um, of all the people in this town, there's one family that we read about that he seems to have had a special connection with three, apparently uh, single siblings who are still living together, Lazarus and then his two sisters, Martha. And Mary, and we 're told numerous times that Lazarus he has like got like a special connection with this this phrase "The one that you love," is said a couple times that 's said about his 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 disciple John as well, so he seems to have had people that he was closer to, friends that he had a special connection with Lazarus seems to be one of those people and his sisters in a way as well and so um, Jesus is in a nearby town, he gets word from the sisters, you know. One of your best friends, your closest friend, he's really sick and he needs you. It's to the point of death. And so they ask him to come presumably to heal him. We find out later in the story. But we're told that Jesus doesn't go, that he waits. In fact, two days, two extra days, we're told. Now, one reason that he's not there is because it's become almost too dangerous for him to be in the area. The sort of what we might think of as kind of a, the whole county that the town is in is called Judea. And so Judea is this sort of larger county area. And just prior to this, the Judeans wanted to stone Jesus. Um, he, he he had to get out of out of town. And so his disciples are saying, this, this, this would be foolish. We don't want to go back, go back anywhere near Judea." And of course, Bethany is in. Judea. So we want to stay away from there. Who knows what could happen? It's two miles from the holy city. The leaders come. Uh, This would be bad. Now, this story is largely about ways in which Jesus absolutely surprises people and kind of turns their expectations on their head. If you think about he's asked to go by two sisters. He doesn't go. His disciples are happy. And then finally, it's too late, and he says, I'm going to go, and his disciples aren't happy. And then he makes his, all these references to him being asleep. He's, this is in the early part of the chapter that we won't have time to read tonight, but he says, oh, he's asleep. And he says, oh, good, he'll wake up. No, 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 I mean he's dead. Oh, he won't wake up. No, no, he's going to wake up for raise. And they're just like, what are you talking about? And it just, it's, it's a sort of confusing setup that Jesus is walking into. So I want to start reading uh, John chapter 11, verse 17. And kind of a big question, you see this in your outline there, is how, how do we understand the person of Jesus? Who is this guy? There, there are tons of books written, not just from Christian perspectives. There's the Buddhist Jesus, and there's the Hindu Jesus, and there's the, there's the Gnostic Jesus. There's tons of perspective on who Jesus is. And I think this text addresses as clear as anywhere, who is this person of Jesus? So start reading with me in verse 17, chapter 11. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, well, I know he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied, I believe that you are the Messiah, the son of God, the one who has come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The rabbi is here, she said, and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. He asked, come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Verse 37. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? OK, now, before we go on, we're going to read a little bit more in the text. Before we go on, I want us I want us to see notice the different reactions that Jesus has to the exact same scenario, two different sisters in the exact same situation. So Martha, Martha comes to him and says, if you would have been here, what her brother wouldn't wouldn't have died. Right. So she says, you've come too late. And Jesus says, I'm the resurrection, i the resurrection and the life with me. It's never too late. And the flow of her heart is toward despair. And it's, it's, almost like, it's almost like he's arguing with her. He's kind of pushing back on the flow of her heart where it's going. It's going to despair, but he's kind of pushing back. on. Now, Mary, sister, exact same situation, virtually the exact same time, literally says the exact same thing to Jesus. If you had been here, my brother would still be alive. It says the exact same thing. And instead of pushing against the flow of her heart, which is towards sadness, he enters it. Isn't that Interesting. Jesus stands alongside her in all of her grief. He's almost—he's almost speechless. He doesn't say anything to her. He just weeps. He just cries. Okay, now two observations I want to make. Just first about this before we go on. Number one, many many critical commentators that 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 you will read about this text will point to this as what they call an internal mark of authenticity, meaning it's evidence. Inside the text that this is an actual eyewitness account, meaning it wasn't just kind of fabricated after the event to come up with some sort of phenomenal stories. Scholars will say, here's why. If you're making up a story uh, about a guy that you want everyone to believe is divine, okay, He's, he's sort of God come in flesh or maybe he's God disguised as a human or something like that. How would you have him walk into a funeral when he knew he had the power to raise his best friend? What would be his inner state? Wouldn't wouldn't he be kind of playful? I mean he'd be walking in sort of rubbing his hands in anticipation, speaking in sort of a high, you know, high voice of I'm the resurrection and the life and that, you know, maybe saying under his breath, you know, sort of like, well, just wait till you see what I've got up my sleeve, you know. He would be walking into this scenario and his inner his inner self, if you're making this story up, would not look like this. You would never imagine that, that, that this divine person would get sucked into Mary's sorrow so quickly, so easily, and just stand there weeping, just tears going down his face, face, not not saying a word. See, this this picture is so opposed to all mythology. If you go, for instance, to the ancient pagan gods that were common in this day to be understood, and classic Greek and Roman uh, literature, for instance, the ideal for a god or a goddess is not this, Let me give you a couple examples. Homer's Iliad, he writes in there, the gods ordain the lot of men to suffer while themselves are free from care. Or there's a writing about Hippolytus and we we read that the goddess Diana is, is asked to sort of have some sort of empathy on this wretched, miserable character. And she replies, Diana, I see thy love, but must not shed a tear. Because, see, that's the ideal for a god or a goddess that you invent. Look how different Jesus is. The God-man. Look what a different response. This is fully divine and yet truly human. Infinitely high and utterly low in the very same person. Now, a second observation that I want to make is Jesus always knows exactly what you need. Um, And this is why I would suggest we need him. Now, one of the things that, you know, in in my role is I've I've been in pastoral ministry here at Timberline Church for about 11 years. And one of the things that always comes along with that sort of role is pastoral counseling. And I I know many of you are, are in professional counseling or clinical counseling, and you know this far, far better than I do. But there's there's this experience as time goes by where we realize how severely limited we are. And our ability to help everybody. Um, why is that? Well, I think partially it's because I don't know what the person needs. Um, do they need to be challenged at that moment? Or do they need to be comforted? And you know, the reason I don't know is because I have a temperament. I have a bent. I lean toward a certain direction. Um, someone has, has called it. ministry of truth that's the scenario where you're with someone and you say I think this person needs to be challenged this, this is what Jesus does to Martha he comes to her and he sort of pulls her up by the shoulders and he says I'm the resurrection and the life do you believe that he challenges. he's, he, he's pushing back on the flow of her heart which is going toward absolute despair and he gives her the ministry of truth and then he meets Mary This is horrible. I forgot what I was going to call it. Here it is. The Ministry of Tears. And with, with Mary, exact same question, or exact same statement, claim. It's actually an accusation. It's sort of pointing the finger, isn't it? If you had done this, this wouldn't happen. Therefore, whose fault is it? The Ministry of Truth, he pushes back gently, but he confronts her. Almost arguing with her. The ministry of tears, he doesn't say a word. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't explain. He just weeps. He just breaks down. Because, see, Jesus is perfect. He's the perfect counselor. That's why why he's called that in Scripture. He's the perfect counselor. He knows exactly when you need this and when you need that. Because, see, if I'm talking to someone and they need truth and I give them tears, I'm harming them. If I'm talking to someone and they need tears and I give them truth, I'm harming them. Jesus never does that. He always knows exactly what you need because he's infinitely high and he's utterly low and he knows exactly what you need at the same time. That's why the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, chapter four, verse 15, he writes, we do not have a high priest. He's speaking of Jesus using Old Testament priest language and so forth. We don't have a high priest who is. Unable to sympathize with our weakness because he he cried. Jesus is always walking around crying all the time. He knows what it's like to be weak, to be vulnerable. But we have one who has been tempted in every way as us. But then he finishes yet did not sin. He's infinitely high. He's, He's holy. Didn't sin. He's divine. He's perfect in character. And yet he was weak and tempted in every way. He knows what it's like to be in the horrors of death. He knows what it's like to have the loneliness of isolation or to be misunderstood, the frustration of physical pain, to be ostracized. He's the perfect counselor. To Martha, he pulls her up from her knees. To Mary, he falls down with her on his knees. See, this is why I would suggest when we talk about things like the doctrine of the incarnation. Okay? We talk about this at Christmas a lot. Incarnation is the idea of, in, that, that God became fully human. He was, he was fully God and fully man and not, you're not confounding the natures and we talk all about it and, and it can like make your head expand and it's this deep theological idea. Is that important to talk about? Absolutely. And there are practical implications to this. It's not just kind of a theological oddity. Oh, isn't that interesting? This would be kind of a fun idea. No, There are practical implications that you need, that I need to balance this. I need the ministry of tears. I need the ministry of truth. But I will never get it with having one or the other. Only the God-man, Jesus, is able to deliver that. And it's because he's both infinitely high and utterly low that he combines qualities. I don't know about you, I don't see in people. I don't, I don't see sort of the paradox of these different attributes in people. Listen, listen to some of these words, uh, Tim Keller in his book that we're kind of springboarding off of in this series, Encounters with Jesus. Listen to what he writes here. He says, it is this paradox that he is both God and human that gives Jesus an overwhelming beauty. He is the lion and the lamb. Despite his high claims, he is never pompous. You never see him standing on his own dignity. Despite being absolutely approachable to the weakest and broken, he is completely fearless before the corrupt and the powerful. He has tenderness without weakness. Strength without harshness, humility without the slightest lack of confidence, unhesitating authority with a complete lack of self-absorption, holiness and unending convictions without any shortage of approachability, power without insensitivity. And he goes on to say, I, I once heard a preacher say, no one has yet discovered the word Jesus ought to have said. Isn't that great? Jesus is full of surprises, but they're the surprises of perfection. And when you see them together, it's beautiful. It's winsome. You go, I've never seen that in one person. I've seen one or the other, but I've never seen both combined into one person. That's the beauty of Christ. Here's what I'd like you to do. We do this every Wednesday night. I want you to turn to the people in your group, and I, I want you to take three minutes and and have this discussion and then we're going to pull back together here so just take a few seconds each if you've got six people around a table that gives you 30 seconds if you've got two you can kind of figure the math you got a minute and a half or whatever there and i want you to discuss this one question right here do you tend more toward the ministry of tears in your in your personality and relating with others meaning comfort are you kind of like man i'm a comforter that's really where I go toward. Or do you tend toward the ministry of truth? Meaning, I tend to really challenge people. Now, you might be extreme one way or the other, you're kind of mixed in the middle, but how would you say that? Do you tend toward the ministry of truth or the ministry of tears in your interactions with other people, family, and friends that you know? Okay? So, three minutes, and then we'll pull back together. OK, let's see a show of hands. How how many of you said I tend to in my relationships lean toward the ministry of truth, kind of the challenge, maybe kind of a confront sort of a. OK, good. You guys are like bold and doing it. Yeah. How, how many people say I, I lean toward kind of a ministry of, of tears, comforted comfort is my gifting. Interesting. Those you're the people I want to sit with. Not. Not the other. anyone perfect. Anyone like I got them both. OK. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know some of you said that because you're arrogant people and prideful. <clears throat> What's so fascinating to me is as 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 we read the Gospels, this Jesus emerges again, that he's just beyond my categories. He's unlike anyone I've ever met. He's so beautiful, so compelling that I say, there's, there's something different about this. The, this, is, this is what one author called the, uh, um, uh, the beauty of divine personality, I think is what it was, is how he put it. Um, how these things can be combined in one person. So we see this idea of what exactly it is that, uh, that Jesus has come to do. Or i uh, sorry, I want to look at what, what it is that Jesus has come to do. But who is he? He's the God. Now he's claiming to be again. Notice Jesus doesn't say when he walks up, um, I've got some power. I can raise this person from the dead. I, he says, I am the resurrection and life. This extreme claim to divinity. All of life holds together by me. I hold all of life together. And then we also see this extreme tenderness. The ministry of tears where he just. Falls down and embraces. Let's let's pick up the rest of the story. John chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, look in verse 38. John chapter 11, verse 38. It says, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time, there's a bad odor The dead man came out, his hands and his feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Now, one thing that it's so easy to miss in just reading it, but anytime you pick up just about any commentary... A commentator will always point out this idea that Jesus is angry in this text. In fact, it's stated twice. He's angry. Now, most English translators, I'm not entirely sure why, but translate like deeply moved or something along those lines. But in the Greek, this is this idea that he he is absolutely snorting with anger. In fact, one commentator read said that this same phrase is used of a horse who's snorting when he's wanting to fight or go or charge into battle. He's snorting with anger. It's absolute indignation. Well, what at, though? He's not mad at the family. This isn't like Job's friends who say, well, oh, your life is going bad. Your brother died. Well, you must have some secret sin in your life, or you must not have enough faith. He doesn't go there. He's not angry at the family. He's also not angry at God. He's not taking blame on himself, because he realizes, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, we live in a sin-soaked world, but the reality is we're part of, we are, the problem resides inside our hearts. So he's not saying, oh, you know, humans should never experience any sort of difficulty in any sort of way. So what is he mad at? He's mad at death itself. Read Romans chapter 8 sometime. Romans 8, Paul is talking about this idea that the world, he uses, he uses language of, of a woman who's pregnant and in the very pains of childbirth, he says that's, that's sort of like our world. Our whole, the whole physical cosmos itself is in the pains of childbirth. And it's, it's waiting, like eagerly awaiting, it says, for the sons of light to be brought into redemption. The idea that our redemption includes cosmic redemption. But the whole world is broken. Death has like ravaged, not just the human race, the physical world. Everything is damaged and broken. And imagine if you walked onto the scene of something beautiful you had created. And then you're stepping through how it has been marred and defaced and damaged. And you see how destruct, personally destructive it is on people. He is absolutely angry. B.B. Warfield, a famous uh, uh, a biblical commentator of the... And end of the uh, end of the 19th century, early beginning part of the 20th century, spoke of this passages. He said, it's like Jesus given all the language. It's like Jesus is approaching the tomb as a warrior. He's going into battle. He's going against something that is the enemy of the human race. Paul picks up this idea that the last enemy is. Death itself. That's what he is deeply angry at now the structure of the gospel of john if, if if you were to look at like the whole book all of it the first 11 chapters were in chapter 11 tonight the first 11 chapters are all about jesus's life and ministry from chapter 12 on it's all about his death and approaching the cross and commentators will tell you that this event right here this whole raising of lazarus there are seven signs throughout it john John picks seven sort of things that are, this is showing who Jesus, this is the last one. This is the seventh sign that John picks out that that he highlights. And it is the turning point, and it shows us something that we cannot miss in this whole text here. See, at the beginning of chapter 11, we read his disciples saying, don't go back there because you go back there, it's your death. The end of chapter 11, if you read on, it has the high priest saying, what are we going to do about this guy? We got we have to put him away because if Rome finds out, it's going to sound like another upsurging. They're going to come in and they're going to wipe us out because it's another failed attempt at Messiah. And then he says, almost in prophetic form, we're told, he said, better one man die for the whole nation than the whole nation die for one man. And John says that was almost a prophetic statement. This whole text is John's trying to get us to see this has to do with death john wants us to see that somehow lazarus is rising from the dead and jesus's death are bound together that's the key that you can't miss here listen listen to the echoes for instance in this story of lazarus and that of jesus's death himself a part of i would suggest is part of the reason why why john tells this uh, particular account here remember jesus asks mary uh where have you laid him Just about a week or two later, a different Mary, Mary Magdalene, is standing at the empty tomb of Jesus. And she said, they've taken my master away and they and I don't know where they've laid him. John wants us to see a connection between the fate of Lazarus and the fate of Jesus. And ultimately, he wants us to see a difference between the fate of ourselves and the fate of Jesus. You can't miss this. Jesus knew that what would stop Lazarus' funeral would only be summoning his own funeral. See, this is why he's approaching the tomb. Instead of smiling, instead of excited about, watch what I'm going to do, he's shaking with anger. He's got tears running down his cheeks. He knew what it would cost him to raise him from the dead with all of it. Maybe, maybe he was able to feel the jaws of death squeezing in on him and yet knowing all of this knowing what it would be the experience he says Lazarus come out he knew what it would entail and the witnesses said about Jesus see how he loves him that's what they saw and here's what I would suggest that we can't miss from this text that you can't miss from scripture is we have to behold we have to look at and say see how he loves us because that's what this text is about Our fate is tied irrevocably to Christ's fate. See how he loved us. Let me give you just a couple points of application here. This passage. Number one. Don't be mad at Jesus for your suffering. Um, Albert Camus, who who is not necessarily any, any friend to. Christianity or evangelical Christianity or anything like that, writing about the person of Jesus in the in this story. He writes this. He says, Christ, the God man, as he's portrayed there, suffers, too, with patience. Evil and death can no longer listen to this because of the cross. He's saying evil and death can no longer be imputed to him since he suffers and dies. The night on Golgotha is so important in the history of man only because in its shadows the divinity ostensibly abandoned its traditional privilege and living through to the end, suffered, included the agony of death. This is explained the lama where Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the frightful struggle of Christ in agony. See, it's only in a faith where God actually involves himself in your suffering that you can't live in this constant state of, oh God, how could you? you don't understand you don't know oh sure you know god you take yourself off the hook no god put himself on the hook that's what the cross is see now you you might not know the reason for your suffering and you probably won't but you can know what it's not it's not because god doesn't love you And that's you guys what we have to drill into our hearts You may never know the reason for a suffering a difficulty in your life. You may never know But you know one thing it is not It is not because god doesn't love you and if you ever doubt it look at the cross And that dispels all of those ideas the doubts That god doesn't really love me Because it's a giant exclamation point to our suffering number two all love is going to involve or entail suffering. True love, costly of love, meaningful love is going to entail some sort of suffering. Um, Jesus can't love and save Lazarus without sacrificing himself. That's, that's just a reality. All real love entails you dying in some aspect of your life. Let me give you an example. If you're, if you're a parent and you've, and you've got little kids, you've got a couple different choices. You can say, well, you know what, I'm just, um, I don't really necessarily want to give up my privacy or or my comfort or my convenience. And so I'm just going to spend as much time with my kids as as I want to, as I feel like. What will happen to your kids? They will grow up needy and horrible and brats and insecure. They will be horrible, maladjusted adults, right? Because you say, well, I'm only going to give what I want. But if if you limit your privacy... If you limit your freedom, if you limit all your abilities and you pour into them, they will grow up healthy. Right? You see how it's, a, it's one or the other. If I hold it back, then I win and they lose. Or I have to lose in order to let them win. Or think of a friend. Think if you have a friendship. Someone, maybe they're not even a close friend. They're just someone that you know, and their life goes to Pot. It just, it's, it's just a wreck. It's a mess. And you know, if you show interest, they're going to be like, <sighs> you know, they're going to like latch onto you, right? And they're going to take up your time, and they're going to emotionally drain you. But you know, the only way for them to rise up to get any sort of health is for you to pour yourself out. You have to lose in order for them to win. All examples of meaningful love in our experience are self-sacrificial. They just are. And the, the more meaningful it is, The more self-sacrificial. So when we get to this, how can we say, oh, God should be able to help and forgive, but it shouldn't cost anything. No, we don't know. We know of no example like that in our experience. Of course, it is going to cost. It's going to be extremely costly. Your strengths will flow towards someone's weakness in order for them to get strong. That's what's taking place in this passage here. Jesus wept. We've read in verse 35, the Jews who said, "See how he loved them." And of course, there's this statement, but some of them said, "Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying?" Which is interesting. It's very similar to a statement made about Jesus while hanging on the cross. Do you remember what it was? He saved others, but he can't save himself. And that's absolutely true. He can't do both. He can save others, but he has to die, or he can save himself. But not save others. But it's not either. His strength has to flow toward our weakness, or we perish. See, if if he really is in this reality, this great of a of a being, and let me make one third point here. If if Jesus really is the God man, if if he is who he is or who he claims to be, you and I have to take off the limits that I put on my allegiance. To Christ. Because I have limits, and so do you. You know you do. If you don't, you're lying. <laughs> I have limits to what I say, okay, I will follow you my allegiance goes this far in this area of my life, this far in this area of this. I have limits to my allegiance. Yes, I love Jesus, but there's limits to what I'm willing to do. See, when someone comes to you and they say, Um, I'm a wise sage. I'm a counselor, I'm I'm some sort of a guru, I have great wisdom, what do you do? You listen to them, right? You take their advice, you weigh their counsel, you may even act on it in some way. But if someone comes to you and says, I'm God, you can't respond that way. You can't say, I'll take your advice, I'll take your counsel. Let me see what your idea is. Let me, let me weigh it against all the rest of my experience and what my friends think and what what I believe internally. If someone comes to you and says they're God, you either run away from them because they're a lunatic or you denounce them because they're an absolute evil person or you have this response you see, where you give all and you hold nothing back if it is truly God. See, Jesus comes and he, he doesn't say, I raise the dead, I perform... Resurrection. I am the resurrection. See, the founders of every major religion said, I am a prophet and I can show you the way to God. Jesus comes and says, I am God, come to find you. That's so different. That's radically different. Let me give you kind of an illustration here. I read about this this last week. Uh, If If the distance even just thinking of kind of our cosmos and our world and everything, if if the distance between the earth and the sun, which is ninety two million miles, roughly, were the thickness of one piece of paper. okay, if that were the thickness of one piece of paper. The distance of the earth to the next closest star would be a stack of paper. Seventy one feet high. The diameter of our galaxy would be a stack of paper. Three hundred and ten miles high and our galaxy is just a little like speck of dust in this enormous place we call the universe and here's the crazy part according to the bible jesus christ holds all this together with the power of his word in his little pinky sort of and then he came and he died for you is this the kind of person you ask to be your personal assistant (laughs) is this the kind of person you ask to kind of give you advice about how to do things In your little speck of the universe No No, it's much different than that You take off all limits You say, I, I will hold nothing back If you really are who you claim to be And the last one, number four Don't let the fear of death control you Now, some of you probably say Oh, I don't, I'm not afraid of death I'm, I'm not afraid of anything Oh, yeah well, then, uh, then why do you say, oh, my, I've, uh, you know, I'm not where I wanted to be in life. You know, I haven't reached, you know, I haven't gotten to that career place where I wanted. You know, I haven't gotten there. You know, I've never been married. And, oh, man, I just, I, you know, I never got the family, you know, that I wanted to in any way. Or I never was able to see the Alps. I have, you know, I've never been able to, you know, whatever. And this sort of deep, you know, bemoaning that um, I've never had these things. See, without Jesus, death takes away The possibility of those greatest desires. It absolutely does. But if you're in Christ, death can't trump your greatest desires that you have. Jesus says, I am the life. And he says, you don't don't think there are mountains in God? You You don't think there's an intimacy greater and deeper than anything you could have in any sort of marriage that might last X number of years here in God? Of course you're afraid of death. That's what we say. That's what we mean when we say, ah, but I'm never going to reach that. Jesus is the resurrection. Those things are in him. He says, I'm the resurrection, I'm the life. All the things you think life is made up of, he doesn't have them in his back pocket. He is those things. They're experienced more fully than you and I ever could in him. I'm reading a, um, a book right now by Brennan Manning. Brennan Manning is the, the uh former Catholic priest. He wrote many, many books, uh Abba's Child, the Ragamuffin Gospel and others. And he died in uh April of twenty thirteen, just coming up on two years ago. And and this, this last book that, that he wrote with the help of someone else, as he was very old, um, on his death, it was his memoirs. and it's really highlighting the failures and the mistakes, and he said, I'm not gonna kind of you know, coated. I did a lot of messed up bad things. And in his life is just littered with garbage. <clears throat> it really is. There's just one point in the book where he speaks of uh, an organization, a brotherhood within um, the Catholic Church that he joined called the Little Brothers. And it was it was started hundreds of years ago by a man named Foucault who 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 looked at Jesus's life. And he said, you know, Jesus had three years of this ministry. But what did he do the first 30 years? He did manual labor, and maybe that's how God builds us. And so this group of this order called the Little Brothers, they just went to the absolute worst places you could imagine. And they, they didn't just share the gospel there. They said, we're just going to get jobs there. And so th- they work in a, in a brick kiln, or they're over here doing this. or the, They're just doing regular jobs, and they let their life preach. The gospel. So Brennan Manning at one point joins this order called the Little Brothers. And he speaks of one man in particular named Dominique Volum. And he says, Dominique was this guy who when, when they would get off, they'd be sitting around having lunch and or working hard. And they realize all the people in this village that they're serving, they're, they're, they're drinking alcohol and making love. And they're having their siesta right now. And they start going, can you believe this? We're doing all this stuff for them. And look what they're having. And he said, Dominique would be crying at the end of the table. And he would say, God, forgive us. They don't understand. It's not about us. And later in Dominique's life, he, he contracted cancer. And so he, had to, he wanted to move back to France to be with his family for the last year or so of his life. And so he said, Dominique left. I never saw him again before his death. But I heard afterwards that he got a job as a night watchman. And he would work late at nights as his kind of normal you know, biological clock was. And in the mornings, he would walk home. He'd walk through the park. And the homeless people, he would give gum and candy to. And he'd go to his flat. And one day in his flat, he was he was found dead. He had died of a heart attack. Brennan says, I like to think of that his heart burst from following Christ. And the very last entry in his journal that was sitting open by him read this one excerpt. It was more than this. He speaks of he said, I can truly say that I want nothing in life. But God, Jesus is all for me. He's my all. He's the resurrection. He's life. he's everything. And then he makes this statement. He says, if God wants it to, my life will be successful through my word and witness. If God wants it to, my life will bear fruit through my prayers and sacrifices. Now listen to this. But the usefulness of my life. That's why I haven't achieved this. I haven't gotten married. I haven't been married. I I haven't gone there. The usefulness of my life is his concern, not mine. Wow. I don't know if I can say that with Whole conviction. The usefulness of my life, as I define usefulness, it's God's concern and not mine. He says, it would be indecent for me to worry about that. Wow. I don't know about you, but I'm not there yet. I spent far too much of my time thinking about what I haven't gotten. Gosh, I just turned 40 years old. And what what, what am I doing? And what have I achieved? What about this? And what about that? The usefulness of my life is not my concern. It's God's. That is a person, I would suggest, Dominic is a person who had experienced, glimpsed the person of Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life, in whom everything holds together. He'd experienced one who's the perfect counselor, who gives the perfect ministry of tears, gives the perfect ministry of truth. At just the right time, at just the right way. And he knew this Jesus totally sustains me no matter what I'm going through. If I'm a night watchman, or if I've contracted cancer, or if I'm in a, a brotherhood of the little brothers, or if I'm wherever. Jesus is the resurrection, He's the life, He's it. I'm fully content in Him. That should be our prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's sobering to think about at times how far away I am from where I want to be. In so many respects, God. Certainly in my life and what I'm doing in relationships and things like that. But but more importantly, I'm realizing in who I want to be in Christ. But it's only because I'm, I'm holding things back in my life. I'm, I, I haven't really given every part of who I am to you. There there are limitations. On how much I'm willing to do for Christ. But I don't want to live that way. God, I want you to take those off. Father, would you take us down. Through Christ's yoke. Which he says it's easy and it's light. The hard way is doing it on your own. The easy and the light way is to take on Christ's yoke. And to learn to do your life with him as he would do it if he were I. And God, as I, as I put myself in that yoke, and as I say, lead, go, I'm too tired, I can't. God, would you shape me? Would you change me? Would you make me the person that you've designed me to be? And God, I pray for us as a community. God, may, may we be so just in awe of the person of Jesus of his beauty, of his radiance, of his brilliance, that we would be compelled to run toward him every day. Thank you that you forgive, God, that when we blow it, you forgive our sins. You cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We don't live in guilt or shame because we know we have one who has gone to battle for us and has defeated death. And so nothing that comes our way will stop it. We're grateful for that, Lord. This week, would you send us out into our community, the places that we already are, whether it be our home or place of work or just wherever we find ourselves. And would you give us deep, deep Christ-centered sensitivity to the ministry of truth and to the ministry of tears. Show us how to be Christ's hands and feet. Give us deep wisdom to go against our tendencies and our leanings and merely our Biology or our upbringing, whatever it might be. But show us how to be more like Christ in all those settings. Because we know that that's how you were expanding your kingdom and hearts and minds of people. We love you, God. We thank you for grace. We thank you that you love us just as we are, not as we should be. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, you guys, thank you so much for being here. Th- thank you for being a part of community. It's a, it's a pretty powerful thing. Thanks for being sensitive to the people around you and community needs. Uh, our prayer team is going to be up front. If you came with um, offering or your tithe, uh, that is at the back. Please, on your way out, drop that in there. Thank you just for your faithfulness in, in giving and who you guys are. And uh, love you guys so much. Get, get a snack before you uh, take off. Go get your kids and bring them back, too, for something.